The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 18th chapter. Taking the twelve, Jesus said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging, and hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, What do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, grant us your Holy Spirit to open our eyes of faith, to see in Jesus our Lord and Saviour, to follow him in life and in death, so that we might be brought by him to everlasting glory. For his name's sake. Amen. The church in Corinth had been blessed with many gifts. There were people in that church who were wealthy, at least one of them was wealthy enough to have a big enough house to host the church in his home. They'd also been blessed with people of eloquence, of learning, of wisdom. And by all accounts, if you turned up on the Lord's Day in Corinth, there were many spiritual gifts evident in the church. Somebody might have gone in there and thought, well, this is a church that is truly alive. Just hear all these prophets getting up one after another, sometimes so eager that they speak at the same time because the Spirit is pouring his prophecy through them for the church. People speaking in tongues, whatever that means. I just checked again this week what the early church fathers thought that meant and they all agreed that meant that they were good at languages, multilingual people. So they were not only praising God in Greek, but maybe in Hebrew or 
Aramaic or Latin or some other language. Who knows? So in many ways you think this church in Corinth is the kind of church that we would like to be. We would like to have some rich people who give generously, wouldn't we? And we would like it if people walked into a church and said, well, whatever you think of this place is definitely alive. Look at all these people with gifts. Earthly gifts, spiritual gifts, eloquence, wisdom, learning. I'm sure every church could do with a couple more PhDs. And yet, Corinth was the church to which Paul wrote the sternest of all his letters but one, the one being Galatians. This church that was so richly endowed with these gifts was a mess. And it was a mess not because they didn't have gifts or because they weren't richly endowed. They weren't a mess because the Holy Spirit had abandoned them and some demonic powers were at work instead. They were a mess because they were lacking one gift and the one gift that mattered most, the gift of love. Paul writes this famous chapter 13 of his letter as the meat in a sandwich which is wedged between his instruction concerning spiritual gifts. He has to remind them that the gifts come from the spirit first of all. They're not their gifts, they're the gifts of their spirit. And secondly, that the spirit gives them a multiplicity of gifts, and that's a good thing. So that they're not in competition with each other. So you have the gift of prophecy, but this person here has the gift of administration. Neither may despise the other because the same spirit gave them each their gifts. Because the church is a body. It is an organ, organic unity of many different kinds of people with many different kinds, kinds of gifts, just as your body is an organic unity made of many different kinds of limbs and organs, organs and, and processes and so on. And you might not want people to see your gut, but if you don't have one, your face isn't much good either. And so the body, in this multiplicity and variety of gifts, is functioning. And only in the variety and multiplicity of gifts will it function. So also the church. And so we are members of the body of Christ. Individually we are members and together we form the body of Christ. And therefore we need all these different kinds of gifts from different kinds of people, and no one may despise one or another. Nor should we be putting them up, ranking them up, saying, we want more people with these kinds of gifts, and maybe we could get rid of a few people with these kinds of gifts, because those gifts are not so important. Or we should reserve the best seats for the prophets, whereas those who make tea, well, they can wait in the kitchen for tea, to when it's time for tea. 
The point being that these are gifts of the Spirit which, which the Spirit has given to people according to His wisdom. And because they are His gifts, they're not our gifts. If you are gifted, and note the grammar there, gifted, that means that you have been given a gift. Not that you somehow have procured or, or produced it out of yourself. Are you good with your hands? Sewing, knitting, woodwork, carving, whatever it is. Well, you didn't make yourself so. Some people have good hands. Some people have good eyes. Some people have good minds. Some people have good voices. Some people have good memories. <coughs> and modern DNA genetics will tell you that to a very large degree, it is an accident of birth, what you are. You are gifted. You have been given something. And since you have been given it, rule number one, all glory belongs to the giver, not the recipient. When you receive a gift or a present on, at Christmas on your birthday, when you receive it, you don't thank yourself, do you? What a splendid person I am. Look at what I've been given. You thank the giver of the gift. All glory belongs to the giver for their generosity. And rule number two, it is a gift given to a member of the body and therefore by definition it is a gift given to the whole body. Anything that one member of the body has either blesses or hinders the whole body. <coughs> if your feet don't work fast enough, your arms will be late as well as your feet. And therefore also in the body of Christ, gifts are given by God for his own glory for the good of the whole church, the whole body. And your gifts are gifts of God to you for the church. They're gifts to you and they're gifts for the church. One of the blessings of being a very poor church like we are, financially poor that is, is that we are dependent more than a wealthy church it's on the gifts of the members themselves. We can't afford a, an expensive coffee machine. Somebody has to actually make the stuff. And we can't afford to go and go to the finest carpenters in Italy to buy beautiful furnishing, furnishings for our altar. So somebody makes it. <coughs> And so even in this modest and, in many ways to the world, unimpressive setup that we have, you can see that gifts have been given, and you will be able to later taste, that gifts have been given to members of the body for the benefit of the whole body, and the whole body benefits. And this is not something that applies only one or two of you, the gifted ones. Every one of you 
has been given a gift. And should you fall ill, or old age or illness take away the things that you consider to be your gifts, you have one final gift to, be, to give. Even when you are, if you become bedbound, or you have to go into a care home, you have one gift left to give. You get to be the person whom others get to serve. I remember many years ago I was having a conversation with somebody in a care home who was depressed about the fact that they felt so useless. An active person had an active life. I said, you know, I'm, I'm so, I can't do anything for everybody. Everybody has to do everything for me. I can't even get dressed on my own. I can't even go to the bathroom or to the toilet on my own. And I feel so useless. And we had this conversation. We noticed that all these people, younger people, bustling about, making sure that people like her got out of bed, got into the bathroom, had food. And we came to the conclusion as the conversation went on that none of these people would have a living if there weren't people like her. If there weren't people like her in need, all those jobs would disappear. Her very incapacity provided daily bread for other people. God has given us both the gift of giving and the gift of receiving. <clears throat> and the gift of receiving is as important a gift as the gift of giving. We call it, it's not for nothing that we call it pride when we don't want to receive help. I'm too proud. Well, if you are too proud, you better repent because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And every time somebody offers to help you, offers to supply you with a need, offers to pour their gifts for your benefit, you are serving them by saying thank you and receiving uh, graciously. You know it yourself how gratifying it is to be able to serve or to help someone and how frustrating it is when they say, actually, no, no, I'm fine, thank you. But I want to help you. And the key to all of this, we find in chapter 13, the chapter about love. The problem with Corinth, and with Pharaoh, if I may say so, is not the lack of gifts. Either giftedness of inherent giftedness. Like in Corinth here, we have people with many different skills and gifts and aptitudes and, and such and we also, like the people of Corinth, have been blessed richly by God's Holy Spirit with his gifts in many and various ways. But because they were given in order to bring glory to the giver and in order to serve the whole body, they will only come to their proper use when they are used in accordance with the instructions of the him who gave them. And God is love. So unless these gifts are used in the service of love, they are being misused or worse, abused. The gift to the Corinthians caused pride. It caused them to despise or envy one another. 
He caused them to form parties and divisions in the church to compete against one another. These gifts were being used in such a way that instead of building up the body of Christ, they were tearing it down. Because each person involved in this battle was regarding themselves over and above others. And this is the diametrical opposite of the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ, which we heard of in our gospel reading, was exactly the opposite. We are going up to Jerusalem, said Jesus, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon, and after flogging him they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. And having said that, what did Jesus do? He carried on his journey towards Jerusalem. He didn't say, that's what's been written in the prophets, so hey, anybody fancy going to Egypt for a while? Should we disappear off into Greece? Because they haven't heard of me there, so it'll be a much safer place. We'll come back when the situation settles down a bit. No, he deliberately went, we're told in early on in Luke's, Luke's Gospel of Jesus, set his face towards Jerusalem. He was determined to go. Why? Because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. And when Paul therefore writes to the Colossians that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, such a profound statement that we could spend the rest of my life and yours un, uh, unwrapping it and, and looking into it. But it, one of the things that it definitely tells us, therefore, is that when we behold Jesus, we find the character of God. And when we behold Jesus, what do we see? We see one who gave himself for the good of others, even though the others were no good. He gave himself out of the bounty of his mercy and gave those things which people needed. He supplied the need of others from his own bounty. And that, dear friends, is the image of God who is love. God who is a giver of gifts. Even when he sets boundaries for us in his law, when he says do this and don't do that, he's giving us a gift. He's giving us the gift of protecting us from sin and from harm. He's giving us the gift of pointing out the true way, way of truth and of life. And shepherding us away from death and destruction. We may not experience it as a gift, since we are foolish creatures. We may experience it, might, may well experience it as a limitation on us, as a burden on us. But it is not, it is a gift. The trouble is, of course, in ourselves. The trouble is that we are all very much in love with ourselves and with, a, with this present world and with this present life. And that is the reason why we live in this seemingly endless battle of the gods. Our life consists of a battle of the gods where we all, all hold our lives as the highest good and our will and our pleasures as the highest goal of our lives. And therefore, we all walk around as little gods in our little universes. 
And we constantly come into conflict with other gods. Because we all walk around saying, how can the world better serve me? What best pleases me? And we can do that through pride and arrogance, considering ourselves better than others. But there is also the humble and meek version of it, which still thinks that it's all about me, but aren't I terrible? Me, 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 me. The unholy trinity, as somebody once said. Me, myself, and I. Which work in tandem with sin, death, and the devil. And this is why love is so very difficult and hard. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. How come? Because it is not concerned with itself. It is concerned with the others. And this is particularly important within the Christian community, in the Christian church, the body of Christ. It applies to all life, of course. But if we are members one of another, anything that is not done out of love is an act of self-harm to the body of Christ. Anything that you do that damages another member of the body of Christ is like a person who, out of anguish or anger or some other destructive emotion, cuts themselves or poisons themselves. We are called to love because we are called to serve because we are members of one body. And as scripture makes explicitly clear, love is the fulfilling of the law. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul and strength and our neighbours as ourselves. That's the law. And though we live and are saved by faith and we live in hope, love is greater than faith and hope. Since love is eternal, faith awaits its fulfilment, hope awaits its fulfilment, then they will be fulfilled. But love never ends. Love was there before the creation of the world because God is love. And once this present world passes away, love will still be there. When, we, when our faith is turned into sight and our hope into perfect fulfilment, Love still remains. In fact, we are saved for the ultimate goal of living in love with God and one another. That's what we were created for, and that's what we are saved for. We cannot be saved by our love, because we need to be saved in order to live in love. Therefore, our own character, our lives, our actions cannot be the means by which we are saved, but they are the goal for which we are saved. That we might be made to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. 
who is the image of the invisible God who is love. And the reason this is hard is because of sin. Because sin still lives in our mortal bodies and we know what we ought to be like, but we are not like that. We hear in God's word how we are to live, but that, that we hear it doesn't make it so because of sin in our mortal bodies. But nevertheless, this is what we are called to pursue. We are called to live in love. And here comes a difficult thing. And this is a spiritual struggle that many of us have. We know that we ought to love one another. And we know that we do not love one another as we ought to love one another. And because there is this discrepancy, this gap between what we know we ought to be and we hopefully would like to be, and what we actually are, our attention is drawn to the gap, to the discrepancy. And we are, we become concerned, worried, or perhaps despondent about the fact that the gap still exists. I don't love as I should. I ought to be more loving. And did you notice what I just did there? It's two sentences that began with I. And our focus is now turned on to the fact that I don't love as much as I should and I'm already thinking about myself again. And the trick which we cannot perform but which is a gift of God is that as we learn more and more about our sin, as we learn more and more about our weakness and the fact that we are dependent on God's gift giving in order to have anything at all, we learn that we are indeed very poor specimens of love. Since we are poor specimens even of faith and hope. We are poor in ourselves. And then we take comfort in the words of Jesus, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. The fact that you find yourself not to be loving is kind of part of the point of the process. The less loving you find yourself, the less lovable you find yourself. And that is one way in which God strips away your arrogance, your pride, your self-regard. But then we must lift up our eyes away from our navels and fix our eyes on Jesus. Because Jesus embodied and personified patience and kindness. He did not envy or boast. He was not arrogant or rude. He did not insist on his own way. He was not irritable or resentful. He did not rejoice at wrongdoing, but he rejoiced with the truth. He bore all things, believed all things, hoped all things, endured all things, even the cross. That our unloving, cold, self-regarding hearts might be forgiven their lack of love, their self-regard, their hardness and their coldness. This is our hope. This is our faith. And this alone is the source of the love that will be of any good for our salvation, which is the love of God towards us in spite of what we are. We do not serve one another in order to become more acceptable and pleasing. We are fully acceptable and pleasing to God as we are. Paul, writing to these wretched Corinthians, began with these words. 
Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth. They were terrible in many ways. You might have looked, they might have looked like a going and living and happening place, but they were fractious. They were immoral. There was a lot of infighting, pride. And he called them the church of God that is in Corinth, those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And he said, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. You have received the same grace of God. And it's nothing to do with what you are like. It's all to do with the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus by his love. And the more that we dwell in this love of God, the more that we continue to confess our sins, the less we have find things worthy of regard in ourselves. And then we can ask, or we can say with the young boy Samuel, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. Ask him where he would like us to serve, what these gifts of ours are for. Not considering our own needs not considering our own honor but be zealous be competitive about serving one another this is hard and it is hard because we carry this mortal sinful nature in us and it is something that the world does not know it can be easy to be nice or kind it's nice to be or it can be easy enough to be one of those things you can be kind without being loving what love requires is that you give yourself to the other and in this we have an example in our Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself up for us but because he has given himself for us all that is required of us by way of fulfillment of the law is already accomplished. You neither can nor need to, nor should, nor must. Build your confidence in God's love by examining yourself. That is always going to be counterproductive. The more you examine yourself, the more you're looking away from Jesus, the more you're looking away from your neighbour. Never mind yourself, that's Jesus' problem. He already loved you and gave himself up for you. Now what else is left to do? Martin Luther, writing in the early, early uh, part of the Reformation, wrote this wonderful little book called The Freedom of the Christian, where he pointed out that since Christ has accomplished everything, there is nothing left that God requires of us as far as our relationship with him is concerned. He requires nothing of us by means of love or good works in order to make us Christians or improve us as Christians. Everything is accomplished. Now what do you do? Got all these years left on earth and everything's already accomplished. Now what? Oh, that's why he gave you neighbours. Their needs will never end. And since love never ends, we will always have godly, Christian, fruitful occupation, especially in the household of God, the body of Christ. The greatest of God's gifts is love. The greatest love and true love is not that we love God or even that we love one another, 
but that he has loved us. But since he has so loved us, brothers and sisters in Christ, let us love one another. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So may the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.